0: Horror Science, a weekly podcast exploring the facts behind your favorite scary movies. I'm your host, Olivia Eiler. This week we'll be covering The Shining. Stanley Kubrick's The Shining was released in 1980 by Warner Brothers. It follows father Jack Torrance as he takes on the position of winter caretaker at the Overlook Hotel. He travels there with his wife, Wendy, and psychic son, Danny. As their stay in the hotel progresses, the family learns more and more about the hotel's mysterious past including a previous caretaker who went mad, killing his wife and two children. When the evil forces inside the hotel begin to influence Jack, Danny has to use his abilities to save himself and his mother. So first off in this episode, we'll talk just a little bit about the novel that inspired the film. Then we'll jump into the usual analysis of the film's content, which includes the issues of cabin fever, seasonal affective disorder, alcoholism, and the psychic abilities involved in The Shining, and this segment's going to involve a similar case study from 1901 that describes the story of Charlotte Ann Moberly and Eleanor Jourda. So if you haven't seen The Shining yet, it's a classic, and I'd recommend it, but if you've seen the movie and you liked it, you should definitely check out the source material, which is Stephen King's novel of the same name. The movie was great, but the book adds a whole other level of depth to the story and really ups the disturbing factor. It was so intense that I had to finish it in two days. But even if you have read the book, you might not know that it was written in a Colorado hotel during the off-season. So any fan of Stephen King knows that most of his novels take place in Maine. And it's not really impossible for a book about being snowed in at a hotel to be set in Maine. But this particular novel was inspired by an actual location in Estes Park, Colorado. So according to King's website, he and his wife stayed at the Stanley Hotel one night in the late September of 1974. He and his wife were the only guests there because the hotel was set to close for the season the next morning. That night, King had a dream in which his three-year-old son was running through the empty hallways of the hotel and screaming, being chased by a fire hose. King claims that the dream jolted him out of bed, and he had the entire plot summary of The Shining finished up that night. I actually had the opportunity to visit this hotel during the summer of 2015, and they offer paranormal tours, so obviously I didn't pass that up. It was a really cool experience, Um, I didn't see anything that definitively proved or disproved the supernatural, but there was a lot of interesting history that was also covered during the tour. So I'm going to summarize just some of the key points from the tour and from the hotel's website for you all. If you want more in-depth information, I'll link to the hotel's site on the landing page for this episode, which can be found at horrorscience.x10host.com. Uh, Also, a quick Google search will pull up a ton of information about the Stanley Hotel for you. But before I summarize this, just keep in mind that this information is coming directly from the hotel, so it's probably a little dramatized. In fact, the last paragraph of the source that I'm going to link you all to reads a lot more like an advertisement than information, so take this information with a little bit of cynicism. But here it goes. So in the summer of 1903, an inventor from the East Coast named Freeland Oscar Stanley traveled to Estes Park, Colorado. It was underdeveloped, mostly just rivers and mountains and forests. Stanley was suffering from tuberculosis, but he recovered after spending one summer in Estes Park. He and his wife planned to visit the area every summer thereafter, but they had a hard time enjoying themselves in the small community. So instead of just picking out another mountainous area out west, They thought it would probably be more practical to just build a huge hotel. Uh, So in 1909 the Stanley Hotel opened to the public and thanks to the development efforts of Stanley and his wife Flora, the area of Estes Park became an official municipality with a water company, a power plant, and civic organizations. The Stanleys also played a key role in designating an area of the Rocky Mountains as a national park. F.O. and Flora both died in 1940 and the hotel slowly started to struggle financially. The website states that the hotel was on the path to closing before Stephen King stayed there and revived people's interests in it. All that comes from the website, but I'm going to share some things I remember from the tour that weren't listed on the website. So this is from a year and a half ago, so I'm not going to claim this stuff as absolute fact, but I thought it was interesting enough to share here on the podcast. So my guide claimed that F.O. and Flora loved the hotel so much that they remained there to run it after their death. She said that F.O. had been spotted and heard in the billiards room, and Flora can sometimes be heard playing a piano. We also heard about a few other people who decided to stay at the hotel permanently. One of them was a little boy who hangs around a second building on the property that hosts a lot of events and weddings. Uh, The guide from my group had us hold up dum-dum suckers in our hands for him to grab, but nothing happened at this point in the tour. In the same building was a man who supposedly appeared on the balcony where he fell to his death from. And the last one I remember was a worker who died while she was still fairly young. I think the guide said she was in her 20s, but it may have even been her 30s. So anyway, the tour guide led us to this woman's old staff room, and while I was there with my siblings, allegedly, the woman's spirit closed the door to her room on command several times. I know that this can be explained away by drafts in the room or being rigged with a string, but it was still pretty wild at the time, and the door didn't shut during the tour that my parents went on a few days later. So like I said earlier, no definitive proof about if ghosts actually haunt the hotel, but I thought it was worth noting the possible history of this location that inspired King, which then in turn inspired Kubrick. So now that we're out of that passion project section about the book, we'll dive into the usual analysis of the movie. I want to start with the more scientifically-rooted seasonal affective disorder and alcoholism. At the end of this episode, I'll cover some information about The Shining ability, which is obviously going to be a little less scientific. There aren't many peer-reviewed studies out there about psychic abilities, but I did try my best. So, one of the things that the film really attempts to showcase is Jack's slow descent into madness. As time passes and the snow outside creates an even greater sense of isolation, viewers can almost feel the tension between the family members. Despite being in this huge hotel, it seems like Jack can never get enough distance between himself and his wife to work on his novel. And all that we see Danny do is walk through a hedge maze, do some puzzles, ride his bike, and watch TV. I know I used to get bored after a couple weeks of summer break in high school, so I can't imagine how this five-year-old feels. It turns out that changes in weather can actually have a huge impact on your mental health. An article in Harvard Health Publications states that almost 19 million American adults are affected by depression. The article lists several possible contributing factors, which include faulty nerve cell communication, genetics, chemical imbalances, temperament, stressful life events, physical medical problems, medications, and the weather. With my knowledge of the book, it seems like genetics, temperament, stressful life events, and the weather all could have contributed to the decline of Jack's mental health. But this episode is going to focus more specifically on Seasonal Affective Disorder. Seasonal Affective Disorder, which is abbreviated as SAD, which is pretty ironic, um, is a form of depression that affects between 1 and 2% of the United States population. It occurs more often in women and children. Although SAD can occur in the summer, it's most likely to appear in the late fall and early winter. And according to the National Institute of Mental Health, Symptoms of generalized depression include feelings of hopelessness, low energy, low interest, changes in sleeping and eating habits, difficulty concentrating, and thoughts of death or suicide. In addition to these symptoms, those impacted by winter seasonal affective disorder also experience excessive tiredness, overeating, weight gain, cravings for carbohydrates, and social withdrawal. There isn't a single definitive answer to what causes seasonal affective disorder, but doctors have listed several possibilities. These include trouble regulating serotonin, which plays a key role in regulating the mood, overproduction of melatonin, and insufficient vitamin D supplies. A study cited by the National Institute of Mental Health found that individuals affected by seasonal affective disorder have 5% more serotonin transporter protein in the winter than in the summer. In the brain, signals are transported from one neuron to another by electrical impulses. So a signal starts in the nucleus, or the center, of neuron number one. From there, it travels down a part of the neuron called the axon, which is like a highway for the information. Then it reaches something called the dendrites of the neuron number two, which acts like a baseball glove to catch the signals. But to reach the dendrites, the signal has to travel across an open space between the two neurons, called the synaptic gap. And this is where it gets kind of interesting. So once a signal reaches that second neuron, a transporter moves the neurotransmitter, in this case serotonin, back to the first neuron so it can be used again. And I thought I didn't learn anything in high school psychology. So what this study means is that because more transporter proteins are produced in some people's brains in the winter, serotonin doesn't have enough time to communicate with the second neuron and properly regulate the individual's mood. Another culprit for seasonal affective disorder involves an increase in the production of melatonin, which signals to your body that it's time to sleep. As light hours decrease in the winter, melatonin production increases, which has the potential of making an individual feel tired and unmotivated during normal waking hours. An interesting side note on the topic of melatonin involves how artificial lighting created in the past 150 years or so has impacted our bodies. So according to Leah Ray in her 2014 article, Effects of Artificial and Natural Light on the Human Body, Several studies have linked the electromagnetic radiation that's emitted by fluorescent bulbs to the development of cancer in mice. Obviously, humans are a little more complex than mice, but you couldn't get a study like this past an IRB board if it was conducted on humans. So Ray goes on to describe the downside of LED lighting as well, claiming that it can harm the retina if it reaches a certain intensity. Finally, a study conducted by the Lighting Research Center at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute concluded that light emitted from devices like phones, computers, and tablets has the potential to suppress melatonin and create a sort of insomnia. In fact, two hours of exposure to one of these devices can reduce melatonin production by 22%. That's the opposite of the problem Jack Torrance is experiencing, but I thought it was an interesting bit of related research. Now, the last probable cause of Seasonal Affective Disorder is an insufficient supply of vitamin D. Vitamin D is closely related to serotonin function, so that's why it's a culprit. You can receive vitamin D either through your diet or your body can produce it when you're exposed to sunlight, which is why it's less available in the wintertime. Right now, there are four main pathways of treatment for SAD, and most of them will be used in conjunction with each other. The first two, which are antidepressant medication and psychotherapy, are pretty standard methods for treating any form of depression, seasonal or not. For seasonal affective disorder, though, in particular, some doctors will prescribe a vitamin D supplement. The jury's still out on how effective these supplements really are, but for now it's still a treatment possibility. Finally, light therapy is pretty specific to seasonal affective disorder. This idea developed around the same time as the diagnosis of SAD. So that was the 1980s. The idea is that people can expose themselves to really bright artificial light for short periods of time in the winter to make up for the lost sunlight. In a 2012 article titled Seasonal Affective Disorder, Bring on the Light, published by Harvard Health Publications, Dr. Michael Craig Miller describes how this type of therapy works. So what I gather is an individual affected by SID will wake up and sit next to this special light box for 30-ish minutes every morning in the late fall and early winter. This box emits 10,000 lux, which is a measure of how intense light is. Just to give you an idea of this measurement unit, normal indoor lighting comes in at around 100 lux, while a sunny day outside measures in at about 50,000 lux. So the goal of this box is to stimulate the brain in the way that would normally occur during the spring and summer. It's important to note, though, that this light therapy isn't a panacea cure-all for seasonal affective disorder. It can actually harm certain individuals. The article gives two examples of this. In people who are affected by bipolar disorder, the bright light from the box can actually trigger manic episodes. The article also states that people with sensitive eyes, such as those with diabetes, have to be careful to avoid damage to their retina. Despite how effective these light boxes may or may not be, I doubt that putting one in the Overlook Hotel would have solved all of Jack's problems. For the purpose of this episode, I've kind of extrapolated the presence of seasonal affective disorder in him, but both the book and the movie explicitly address his issues with alcoholism. So that's where we're going to head now. First, I wanna look at how alcohol affects the body in both the short and the long term, and how alcoholism develops. Then we'll look at something called alcohol-induced psychotic syndrome. The information about alcoholism comes from a How Stuff Works article written by Stephanie Watson. First off, it's important that we distinguish between alcoholism and alcohol abuse. Just drinking a lot doesn't qualify someone as an alcohol abuser or an alcoholic. So alcohol abuse is defined as drinking that interferes with daily responsibilities or places the drinker in a dangerous situation, such as drunk driving. In addition to abusing alcohol, alcoholics also face a physical dependency on the drug. We'll explore how this dependency develops later, but for now I thought a few statistics would fit in pretty well. So according to the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism, alcoholism costs the United States an estimated $185 billion per year in medical expenses, crime, lost productivity, and accidents. And data from the 2001-2002 National Epidemiologic Survey on Alcohol and Related Conditions reveals that over 17 million Americans are affected by alcoholism or alcohol abuse. Throughout their lifetime, 10% of men and between 3 and 5% of women will experience alcoholism. And finally, people aged 18 through 44 are more likely to develop the disease than those over 44. So why does alcoholism develop, and who's at greater risk? Several risk factors have been identified, including genetic, physiological, and social factors. Generally, research shows that children of alcoholics are four times more likely to become alcoholics later in their life. A study conducted over the course of nearly 40 years revealed several possible genetic links to alcoholism. This study began at the Indiana University of Medicine in Indianapolis in the 1980s and was published by PLOS Genetics in August of 2016. Rats bred in a lab were given the choice to drink either pure water or water mixed with 10% ethanol. Over 40 generations, researchers selectively bred the rats who drank alcohol most frequently and rats who drank the alcohol least frequently. Researchers then selected 10 rats from the high-drinking group and 10 rats from the low-drinking group. An analysis of their DNA revealed 930 genes that differed between the two lines. Surprisingly, only four of these genes controlled protein production. The majority of the differences appeared in DNA that regulates gene activity. One co-author explained, quote, "...altering amounts of proteins could shift biochemical reactions important for determining behavior." The article goes on saying, another quote here Until recently, scientists thought alcoholism and other problems stemmed from inheriting altered forms of genes that would produce faulty proteins. Now researchers realize that regulating gene activity is often just as important as changing the genes themselves. It isn't really explored in Kubrick's version, but King's novel goes in depth about Jack's problems with his own father and his father's alcoholism. So the genetic link present in the novel's plot exists outside of the story world as well. Obviously, alcohol consumption can have hugely detrimental effects on the body, but for this episode, I'm going to focus on the impact it has on the mind. If you're interested in exploring the other side effects, the landing page to this episode will link to the How Stuff Works article on alcoholism where you can find that information. So earlier in the episode, we talked about the neurotransmitter serotonin, which impacts the mood and plays a role in seasonal affective disorder. Alcohol also impacts brain chemistry by altering levels of neurotransmitters. Neurotransmitters can either be excitatory, meaning that they stimulate electric activity, or inhibitory, which means that they decrease electrical activity. Alcohol impacts three main neurotransmitters, GABA, glutamate, and dopamine. Alcohol consumption increases the effect of GABA, which is an inhibitor that slows down movement and slurs your speech. Alcohol inhibits the excitatory neurotransmitter glutamate, which causes the body to slow down even further. Finally, alcohol consumption increases the release of dopamine, which activates the brain's reward center. For this reason, alcohol can become psychologically and physiologically addictive. And if this short-term stuff isn't freaky enough for you, alcohol has terrible impacts on your brain in the long run. Over time, your body will develop a tolerance, meaning that you'll have to drink more and more to obtain the same effect. And if an alcoholic finally does decide that they want to quit, their body won't let them. The brain and the body of an alcoholic adapt over time to prolong their life. Your body isn't meant to consume so much alcohol in a day, but it'll try to adapt so that you can live through it. These adaptations include physical changes and alterations in neurotransmitter production. So upon quitting drinking, alcoholics will experience withdrawal symptoms, which can include anxiety, nausea, sweating, disorientation, hallucinations, and seizures. And if that stuff doesn't sound bad enough, long-term excessive drinking leads to a permanent decrease in brain size and creates deficiencies in the fibers that carry information between brain cells. Some alcoholics will develop Wernicke-Korsakoff syndrome, as a result of how the alcohol impairs their ability to absorb vitamin D. Wernicke-Korsakoff leads to mental confusion, lack of coordination, and memory and learning problems. So if I didn't get a little preachy at this point in the show, I would feel quite guilty about it. So every year, 2 million Americans seek help for their alcoholism. Treatment is an ongoing process that can include detoxification, medication, and counseling. And although recovery is hard work, it's a lot better than the alternative of permanent, irreparable damage to your body, brain, and relationships. So if you or someone you know is struggling with alcohol abuse or alcoholism, you can talk to your general doctor, or you can get information from Alcoholics Anonymous at their website, which is aa.org. So the statistics show that alcoholism affects more Americans than most of us would care to think it does. But now I want to explore something quite a bit rarer and that's alcohol-induced psychotic syndrome, which is referred to as AIPS. This information comes from a paper published in the British Journal of Psychology in 2010 called Alcohol-Induced Psychotic Disorder and Delirium in the General Population. Two distinctions exist within AIPS. The first is alcohol-induced psychotic disorder, which involves perceptual disturbances beyond the normal symptoms of intoxication. These symptoms warrant clinical attention and may involve hallucinations. For diagnosis, this psychosis must usually last longer than one day. The second distinction within AIPS is delirium, which involves a disturbance of consciousness. One of the most cited studies on this topic involves interview data that was collected from 8,020 citizens of Finland between the years of 2000 and 2001. The sampling was two-staged for this study. First, 80 areas across the country were selected, then a random sample of individuals were chosen from each of these 80 areas using the National Population Register. 444 participants were selected for ongoing interviews and data collection. Alcohol-induced psychotic syndrome was diagnosed in 39 of these individuals. Of those, 31 were diagnosed with alcohol-induced psychotic disorder and 14 were diagnosed with delirium including six people who had both diagnoses. By gathering information about the participants lifestyles, medical history, hospitalization records, and treatment plans, researchers were able to generate some important statistics. The lifetime prevalence of AIPS in the general population was half a percent. However, that percentage increased to 1.8 for men of working age. Risk factors found for the development of alcohol-induced psychotic syndrome include younger age at the onset of alcohol dependence, low socioeconomic status, father's mental health or alcohol problems, and multiple hospital treatments. The prognosis for AIPS isn't very hopeful, with 37% of those diagnosed having passed away before the eight-year follow-up of the study. Although this study contributed to the demographic knowledge of AIPS, treatment analysis was pretty much absent from this study. AIPS is relatively rare, but there is still a lot of research that needs to be done in terms of treatment. So right now, though, if you're worried about it, the best that you can do is to just avoid alcohol abuse in the first place. So now we're through the rooted, scientific portion of this episode. It's relatively easy to study and explain alcoholism and its effects on the body, but it's another ballgame entirely to get into Danny's abilities, The Shining. For those of you that listen to the podcast for the science and haven't seen the films, Danny is this five-year-old genius who has what the kids from Stranger Things would call X-Men superpowers. This kid has all of these powers rolled into his tiny body. He can view the past, communicate with others telepathically, and he can see the future. Obviously, there isn't a lot of grounded science on these sort of topics, but I did my best to find some stuff that could tie in. So we're going to look at a few scientific studies, and then we'll do a brief case study of an event that happened in 1901. So first, I've got some interesting information from a review article published by Frontiers in Human Neuroscience in 2014, titled, Predicting the Unpredictable, Critical Analysis and Practical Implications of Predictive Anticipatory Activity. That title is a little wordy, but uh, the information in the article basically deals with precognition, which relates to Danny's ability to see visions of the future. So data was analyzed from seven independent laboratories, and the report came back that the human body can predict the nature of dichotomous stimuli occurring between 1 and 10 seconds into the future. Dichotomous stimuli can include silence or sound, emotional or neutral images, and smooth or rough textures. Basically any stimuli that can be separated into two distinct categories. The ability to detect this is referred to as predictive anticipatory activity, PAA. And according to the studies, human bodies display changes in cardiopulmonary, skin, and or nervous systems before the external stimuli change occurs. One key distinction between PAA and the shining involves levels of consciousness. While Danny is aware of his visions and he's able to determine his future actions based upon them, PAA is exhibited on an unconscious level. These studies had participants passively view or listen to a series of randomized stimuli that could be divided into two categories. Throughout the experiment, physiological data such as skin conductance, heart rate, respiration rate, and EEG activity were recorded. Analysis of the studies concluded that the conditions of these body systems were the same both before and after responding to the varying stimuli. In other words, Seconds before switching from a neutral image of a wall to an exciting image of a child smiling, participants' bodies would already begin to show signs of excitement. This all sounds really cool, but there is some reasonable doubt surrounding PAA, and that's also discussed in this article. Different systems of data analysis exist, and skeptics claim that researchers who don't receive the desired results from one system may simply switch to another. But the meta-analysis involved in this study kind of controls for that possibility. Also, there is the possibility of experimenter bias and priming. This one is a little harder to work against. The article gives this example, quote, "...forward priming describes a situation in which previous events influence responses to future events. Thus, responses to the word flower are faster if the word is preceded by the word tree versus the word knife." So it's a little harder to rule out that this sort of bias hasn't entered the mind of the researchers, so it's important to keep in mind. This article does its best to disprove this influence, stating, If order effects are largely responsible for PAA, there should be a significant negative correlation between study effect size and the number of trials performed. However, this is not the case. So as cool as PAA sounds, there isn't a whole lot of practical uses for it. It's not like Danny's precognition, and you can't use it to consciously sense the future of your father's mental health. Because it occurs on the unconscious level, it's almost impossible to apply PAA to decision-making. The article makes a great point in saying that PAA only runs between 1 and 10 seconds into the future, so it wouldn't be of that much help anyways. But the authors do mention that PAA may act to assess upcoming events and filter them before alerting our consciousness. So another cool aspect of The Shining is the ability for those who have it to communicate with each other telepathically. You'll remember this occurring when Dick Halloran offered Danny ice cream without speaking, and later in the movie when Danny called Halloran back to the hotel using his mind powers. So like precognition, there isn't a whole lot of reliable information out there for telepathy, but I did find one interesting study titled Conscious Brain-to-Brain Communication in Humans Using Non-Invasive Technologies, which was published by the Public Library of Science in 2014. There are a couple important terms to understand before we hop into the meat of this study, so I'll run through those quickly. The first is brain-to-brain communication, which is abbreviated as B2B and also called hyperinteraction. B2B is basically the goal of this study, allowing two humans to communicate without using sensory or motor systems. So instead of hearing someone speak, or tapping someone's arm once for yes and twice for no, the message goes directly from one brain to the other. The second term you'll need to know is brain-computer interface, BCI. This is technology that can detect signals from the human brain and translate them into binary codes, so streams of zeros and ones. Finally, you've got computer-brain interfaces, CBI. This is technology that decodes the binary into signals of light. For instance, a zero might be represented as a bright flash of light in the receiver's field of vision. The researchers in this study had three main goals in addition to exploring brain-to-brain communication. They wanted the communication to be non-invasive, cortically based, and consciously driven. This process started with one participant named the emitter located in India. The emitter was hooked up to a BCI machine and instructed to move their hands, which would be coded as a zero, or move their feet, which would be coded as a one. The emitter performed a sequence of these movements, which were then coded by the BCI machine. This code was then sent over the internet through email to three other participants in France. These three were referred to as the receivers. The receivers were hooked up to CBI devices, and the message from the emitter was decoded. Ones were represented as bright flashes of light created within the brain, and zeros were represented with an absence of light. So it's important to recognize that all of this is happening directly in the brain. It's not a researcher looking at the decoded message and holding a flashlight up to the receiver's face and turning it on and off. The signals are coming directly from the CBI device and prompting the receiver's brain to perceive flashes of light. So this worked, and the researchers must have thought that transmitting information about hand and feet movement was a little weak, Uh, So they started to transmit words from the emitter to the receiver. They started with "ola," which was coded in 5-bit Bacon Cipher, and repeated to the receiver 7 times. So that's a total of 140 bits that were transmitted brain to brain. The error rate for this first trial was 11%. The next word they tried was CHOW. Once again, the code for the word was repeated 7 times for a total of 140 bits. This time, the error rate went down to 4%. If you're like me, you don't really understand the significance of this error rate, but the article has you covered. It states that the probability of correctly guessing 140 random bits with an error rate of 20% is equivalent to flipping a coin 140 times and getting heads 112 times. So this brain-to-brain communication for simple words is pretty solid. Unfortunately, it takes about 30 seconds to transmit one bit of information from one brain to the next. So these four-letter words each took about an hour and 10 minutes to transmit. The study goes on to describe some potential areas for further research. One of these is the transmission of emotions instead of words from a language. Another possibility for the future is to hook up both participants to both devices, BCI and CBI. This has the potential to allow for a back-and-forth conversation to occur, instead of the one-way communication that occurred during this study. So for the final portion of this podcast, I want to do a quick look at a case study from 1901 that relates to Danny's ability to see and interact with the hotel's previous guests. This study is about two ladies in Europe who published a book that claimed that they accidentally traveled back in time and interacted with the ghost of Marie Antoinette. This is a pretty big claim, especially for two women at the beginning of the 20th century, so they were met with a lot of criticism. I read a 30-page account of their story and their critics' responses. I'm just going to summarize the important stuff here in the podcast, but if you've got a couple hours to kill, I'll post the link to the full 30 pages on the landing page for this episode. This source is called Contagious Folly, An Adventure and Its Skeptics. It was written by Terry Castle, a professor of English at Stanford University and published in the University of Chicago Press Journal in 1991. So in 1901, this lady in her mid-50s named Charlotte Ann Moberly was serving as the principal of the Oxford Women's College, St. Hughes. She was looking for someone to fill the position of vice principal, and Eleanor Jourda, who was in her late 30s, was recommended. So like your standard job interview... Moberly travels to Paris to interview Jourdan and the two take a sightseeing trip to Versailles. Just your standard job interview stuff here. So while they're in Versailles, the pair travel to Petit Trianon, and they claimed that some weird stuff went down here. They were just walking around the site, and all of a sudden they got lost. So they come across this really weird-looking plow, like for a field. Then they start seeing all of these strangely dressed people doing odd jobs. They see this lady shaking out a sheet, they see two women walking along the road looking like they're coming from a historical reenactment, they see people carrying water pails, and then they see these two guys dressed in long green coats, which probably weren't fashionable in 1901, and the two women decide to ask for directions. The two guys point them to this mysterious path that pops out of nowhere, so of course Moberly and Jordan start walking down this path. Uh, they see a lot more of the same kind of people, and they're getting some weird vibes. Um, Moberly later described these intense feelings of depression that she got. She wrote, quote, Everything suddenly looked unnatural, therefore unpleasant. Even the trees behind the building seemed to have become flat and lifeless, like a wood worked into a tapestry. There were no effects of light and shade, and no wind stirred the trees. It was all intensely still. So the two women decide to turn back, and they finally reach the building of the Petit Trianon. Sitting outside on the steps, they see this woman in a pink dress who's sketching and looking really sad. But before Moberly and Jourdan can really get a grip on the situation, this butler guy leads them to the front of the building where they join a tour group for the rest of the day. So they go back to Paris and all seems well again, and Moberly decides to offer Jourdan the job. So we jump ahead in time three months, and both women are staying together in England at the school. Jourdan brings back up their weird trip to Petit Trianon, and as they're talking about it, they start to realize that they saw different things. For example, Moberly saw the sketching woman, but Jourdain did not. So they agree to write their own accounts of what they saw independently, and then compare the two accounts. As they shared these with each other, they found that there were a lot of people that only one of them saw. And here's where it gets juicy. Jourda is going over some school lessons on the French Revolution and figures out that the day that they visited the Trianon, the 10th of August, was the anniversary of the sacking of Tuileries. So on that day in 1792, Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette saw their guards get killed and were themselves imprisoned. This little piece of information sets off a whole chain of events. Jourdain reaches out to one of her old friends in France and asks if she's heard of any of the hauntings at Petit Trianon. And her friend basically says, yeah, every year on this one day in August, the ghost of Marie Antoinette pops up. So Jourdan travels back to France to check it out again, and she finds out that it's a lot different spatially than she remembers from her first visit. This leads the two women to conclude that, obviously, they must have fallen into a memory that was projected by the ghost of Antoinette. The two women reach out to the Society for Psychical Research to investigate this, but the society says no, there's not enough evidence. Jourda and Moberly respond by diving into their own research on the history of this location. The article I'm getting this information from lists a lot of examples, but I think the most interesting thing they focused on was that plow that they saw at the beginning. In 1905, they interviewed a gardener at the Trianon who said that there wouldn't have been a need for plows there in 1901. And they start looking into records that listed the gardening tools that were purchased by the Trianon. So from this, they're able to conclude that there's no way that this plow would have been there at the same time as them. The two women researched a lot more than just this garden tool, and they published all their findings and their account of the haunting they experienced in a book titled An Adventure in 1911. There was a surprising amount of interest in this book, and it sold over 11,000 copies in the first two years. But it also got attacked by a lot of skeptics. The most notable criticism came from a 1911 review article written by Miss Henry Sidgwick, and she says a lot of what you listeners are probably already thinking. Moberly and Jorda did get lost, but they probably just fabricated their ghost story after the fact. After the two women decided together that they had experienced a haunting, they tricked their own memories into operating within that framework. So the two women fired back at this and said that the two accounts they had written independently three months after the incident proved that they didn't work together to make this up. But the critics just responded right back by saying that of course the two authors would say anything to defend their work. There's no proof that the women didn't work together on those first accounts. This debate went on for the next 60 years, even after both Moberly and Jourda passed away but now it's commonly accepted that these two women experienced a collective delusion called folie à deux. I'm not saying this is definitive, I wasn't there, but it is interesting to see how long this debate lasted. So at the time of this event, a lot of people assumed that if you claimed to see a ghost, you were just mad. So when two people saw the same ghost, the only logical conclusion that could follow for a lot of people was the folie à deux. This involves two people An active partner, and a passive partner. The active partner is in charge of initiating the delusion. The passive partner, on the other hand, usually has lower intelligence and is codependent. Over time, the active partner continually shows what they believe to be evidence of this delusion to the passive partner, and the passive partner will eventually just accept this delusion. It helps move things along a bit quicker if the delusion involves emotions and if the delusion involves something in the past or future since that's harder to disprove. It also helps if the partners in the delusion live in close proximity, so you see this most often in mothers and daughters, or husbands and wives. With this knowledge, it's interesting to note that Moberly and Jourdan were living together at the school during this time, and it's also fairly easy to identify Jourdan as the active partner. She was the one who brought the incident back up three months later. She was the one who traveled back to the Trianon for the second time, and she was the one that discovered the connection between the dates. This article claims that the only real hope for getting rid of a folie à deux is to separate the partners, and eventually the passive partner might recover from the delusion. This wasn't the case with Moberly and Jourdain, as they continued to live together and work together and defend their experience for the rest of their lives. This is the point where the article goes a little bit off the rails for me uh, for about the last five pages or so. The author of this paper, Terry Castle, starts making these claims that it was repressed lesbian desire that created this delusion in Moberly and jourdal And this claim just seems a little bit dated to me in 2017, so I'm not really going to go into it any deeper on the podcast, but if you're into it, the link to the whole article is up on the landing page. So there you have it. Now you know that cabin fever is a real thing. It's just technically referred to as seasonal affective disorder. Uh, It would be interesting to see how The Shining would have played out if the Overlook Hotel was fitted with a bunch of these light boxes. We also did a deep dive into alcoholism and the dangers of chemical dependency. And lastly, a few somewhat related studies on The shining psychic abilities. As always, if you're listening on iTunes, feel free to subscribe and leave a rating or review. If you missed the website earlier, that will have all the links to the sources I referenced throughout this episode. That web address is horrorscience.x10host.com, and finally, if you've got any comments on the episode or suggestions for future films, you can email those to me at horrorsciencepodcast at gmail.com, or send a tweet out to at horrorsciencepo. Thanks for listening, and be on the lookout for a new episode next week.